Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the second episode of Three Daisy Things, where we talk about food, culture, and people from South Asia. Today, we have some really interesting things to talk about. And I'm going to start with mine, which is about the Jewish origins of Bollywood. So my thing for today is that the first female superstars of Bollywood were actually from the Jewish community because it was considered at the time not appropriate for Hindu or Muslim women to act on screen. Would you say it was not kosher? <laughs> I'm going to just ignore that. <laughs> keep keep telling us about this. That's very cool, Sarb. Tell us about the Jewish women of Bollywood. I watched this uh, really nice documentary called Shalom Bollywood, which traces the origins of how the Jewish community contributed to Bollywood. It talks about Salochana, uh, who was uh, like a huge deal, and she was a superstar of the silent film era of the 1920s. And she was one of the highest paid actresses at the time. And her salary at the time was more than the governor of Bombay. And she is also said to have um, have driven India's first Rolls Royce. So it's, it's kind of amazing what these women did during those times. You know what's cool about that fact is given the culture today of both Bollywood and Hollywood where women don't get paid, like girl got paid. So Lotra was like, you know, she was like, give me my cash. She like rode around in her Rolls Royce around Bombay, like just to like get her adoring fans or whatever. Love. Yeah, that's great. Were these silent films or had they, they were, they were stars of the talkies as well. So Sulochana was the star of silent films. In fact, uh, it was a Jewish writer who wrote India's first talkie film, which is Alamara. So they have a pretty significant role to play even there. And they all changed their name, which is, um, they all changed their name because they all had fairly traditional Jewish names, but Solochna chose her name because of like her eyes. Like she had beautiful big eyes. There was Miss Rose. There was Pramila, who was actually like Esther Ezekiel. So this kind of tradition of changing her name to something more palatable for the Indian audience is like has its roots in early Indian cinema. That's interesting. So that's probably why also people are unaware of maybe more widely of this history because um, of their stage names, which we clearly see later in Bollywood, too, with so many Muslim actors and actresses taking on Hindu stage names. So the Jewish women were clearly very like ahead of their times and very progressive. Which you also see in a lot of like the work that they do, right? Like the first on-screen kiss in India, which is still like, it's not taboo anymore, but it's still kind of like, oh, there's a kissing scene, was done by a Jewish woman. Oh, wow. So these women are especially popular pre-independence India, right? Like they're more popular pre-1947. Yeah, I think uh, Pramila, whose real name was Esther Abraham, I think. She was the first Miss India, and uh, when India became independent, she became Miss India in 1947, and she was kind of a like a badass woman in her own right. So she ran away from home to get married, and she usually played the role of a vamp. She did her own stunts. She was one of the first female film producers. And Pramila's son, I think, Heather Ali, who was also an actor, he was the writer of Jodha Akbar. So the Jewish roots still run through Bollywood today. That's, that's so interesting. You know, I think, you know, you're mentioning, um, you know, how progressive uh, these actresses were at the time. I mean, I think this is also, um, there is some kind of global history because I think both in Bollywood and in the history of like theater in even the West, men did play women's roles, right? And yeah. so 
this is this shift was happening at a time when you know directors and filmmakers were like okay we want to move away from that and see if we can get a woman to actually play a female role yeah which is really interesting because all of early hindi cinema is men playing like you know men in saris and stuff and yeah and and you're right there a lot of those actresses were sort of pre-independence and around the 1940s and it seems like around the 1940s it became more socially acceptable for women from other religions to be performers and actresses and that's when you start getting your nargis and later on uh, madhubala and those kind of a- those actresses in shri charsobis there is nadira who is also jewish oh interesting so at this time then we also see uh we basically see like the dominance of you know these actresses like such as Madhubala, Meena Kumari, who are, both of these are their stage names, right? And that that yeah. kind of continues. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you see the entrance of Hindu women later, right? Like you are seeing the Jewish women and then the prominent names of that time are then the Muslim minority and the Hindu women are coming later. So they really were pathbreakers in a lot of ways. I think so but the popular actresses at the time were uh, Madhubala and Nargis and later on but Rahman. yeah Wahida Rahman who refused to change her name all of the other so Nargis's real name is actually Fatima but then they changed her name to Nargis which is more of a Persian name and uh, Meena Kumari was born Mahajabeen Bano so she's also a Muslim and Dilip Kumar is Muslim it was kind of the style or practice at the time to change most names to Hindu names uh, so that it's more acceptable to to the people and maybe because it was very close to the partition and and the wound of the partition was still so raw and people were not ready to act so you know it's interesting because i i hear basically like you know two different strands which i think continue to you know even modern india today which is basically that you know the history of minorities in bollywood is like there from the very beginning and when right. today even today when people say that, oh, look at, you know, um, both with for different agendas, Bukbath and bouquets, like how many, you know, minorities, Muslim, uh, especially uh, Muslim actors and actresses are in Bollywood. Um, that clearly has been a consistent theme from very early on. But at the same time, you know, having to appeal to the majority and the majority Hindu sensibility is also very important um, and a huge concern where people had to, you know, think about their stage names. It's so interesting, right? Like Hindu women can't be actresses, but the actresses must have Hindu names or at least like middle ground enough names that they're palatable to the majority audience. But that um, pattern still holds, I guess, not so much with a Hindu name, but like Katrina Kaif is a good example, right? Like her name on her passport is what, what, like her mom's name, which is a British name. And she couldn't like they thought to make her again more palatable for the Indian audiences. They had to Indianfy her name a little bit. Right. And interestingly, um, you know, because of um, probably the you know politics of uh, at the time and partition and independence, uh, Nehru, India's first prime minister, appealed to filmmakers to kind of rise above this trauma and think about these, think about themes, even if, you know, these biases were still existing 
you know, on the microcosm level of like, okay, who's, who's playing what and, you know, what their names are. He was appealing to them and, and asking them to think about humanity beyond religious identities. And actually that those themes have been there in, in Bollywood, these like kind of mirroring uh, the hope for India's ideals for secularism and inclusivity. Um, but so we kind of see these the tension between you know these themes, but then also what happens actually on the ground. I mean, sometimes the names were changed purely because the original names are not they were just not cool enough because Manoj Kumar's <laughs> original name is Hari Krishna Goswami. So and Devanand is named like <laughs> Dharamdev Pishorimal Anand. So often Hindu actors and actresses have changed their names as well, just to seem more cooler or more glamorous or distinct. Well, I mean, you're not going to have a crush on Pishorimal Anand. Like, <laughs> I, I thought you had more substance no, than that. No, Pishorimal were... Anand. It's not going to be like, oh, I want to be Mrs. Pishorimal Anand. That sounds terrible. Well, his parents really like, didn't give him a chance, huh? Like, <laughs> he had to change his name. Like, I mean, I say this with a lot of love. I have an uncle named Maharaj Krishan, which is just too much to put on one person. But Pishorimal Anand is terrible. And also, Dharmendra is named Dharam Singh Deol. That's kind of cool, though. Yeah, but they, I think, like, at the time, they were like, okay, let's just keep it short and sweet so that people can remember your name. And for some reason, Bollywood or the directors and producers, they seem to think the audience is stupid. So they <laughs> they reduce it to the lowest common denominator of whatever people can remember, which is why we get sometimes get the films that we well, see. Hate on Bollywood. We just got, so we took a turn. We took a turn. But I mean, regardless, even if the Hindu actors and actresses are changing or having stage names, they're still like Hindu associated. Yeah. yeah. So regardless, like, you know, they're not taking on, um, you know, a pseudonym for a religious minority. But, you know, um, coming back to the Jewish community, I'm just really curious to know, like, what, you know, is their history and, you know, that brought them to the region? I think like at least uh, so there's four sort of branches of the Jewish community in India and I believe the earliest ones are the ones who came as traders way back some documents kind of trace it back to the time of King Solomon which I want to say is like 1000 yeah, or 900 early. BC yeah. a lot of them came to the western coast the Malabar coast uh, which is why they are called the Cochin Jews uh, which is Kochi in Kerala then there are the Sephardic Jews there's four major areas in India where the Jews migrated to. One is uh, the western coast and the Malabar or Kerala coast. Uh, one is in Calcutta. One is in Mumbai, which is the Bene Israel community. Then there are some in Delhi. There's an interesting history of the Bene Israel, though, because they're the ones, they left um, Israel because of the Roman occupation of Israel. And then their ship, they like went around the spice route to see if they could find a port, like a friendly port, and their ship sank. So they literally washed up onto the Konkan shore and established themselves. So they've been there for quite a long time. Interestingly, even in India today, like their numbers are around 6,000. And many yeah. may not realize that there are over 35 some synagogues. And, you know, in 2611, one of the sites that was um, targeted in the terrorist attack in 2008 yeah. in Bombay yeah. was Nariman House, which is a Chabad community. And the rabbi and his wife were killed and their baby uh, escaped because their nanny saved him. 
Um, and the nanny went back to Israel with the baby. Baby Moshe, is, his story is really famous. I remember reading about Baby Moshe, and I think Baby Moshe came back with his nanny on the anniversary or the tenth anniversary of the attacks. The, it was all over the papers when it happened. It was really sad. And uh, coming back to Bollywood, uh, the first Indian talkie was written by this. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if, his, if I mentioned his name, but it was a Jewish writer, David Joseph Penker, who wrote the first Indian talkie movie. Uh, but there was also David, who was fondly called Uncle David, whom we have all seen in Rishikesh Mukherjee movies. So he's in Chupke Chupke, he's in Golmal, he's in uh, Khoop Surat. He's always like the jolly old uncle that stops by and fixes the problem. I didn't, I really didn't know he was Jewish. I just, because his name's David, I think in India you just assume Anglo-Indian Christian something. Um, apparently a lot of, um, because their names can be, a little bit ambiguous could be Anglo-Christian or you know mixed with the British colonial history. People have not been um, as aware of the the Jewish roots. So actually, I think that was one of the impetuses for this documentary. Well, and we like owe them a lot of Bombay. So I mean, he's probably not the only person to do it. But when David Joseph Penker made the talkie, he included like the song and dance numbers that we're now known for, right? Like Bollywood is characterized by being a music, mostly being musicals, having these big elaborate song and dance numbers. And that was in the first talkie because of him. So like we owe him our pretty rich history. And yeah. Cinema. And it's funny to think that the way this documentary was made was this director, Danny Ben Moshe, he's an Australian and one of his Indian grad students sent him the obituary of Nadira who I mean, she was the vamp in Sri Charsobis or Sri 420 and then went on to play more of like grandmother and mother kind of roles. Uh, she died in 2006 or so somebody sent him the obituary and said, oh, look at this. This was a Bollywood uh, actress who was Jewish. And he was like, what, really? I didn't even know this was a thing. And I think he went to India and did a lot of research. And I believe it took him like 10 years to make this documentary. But it's super fascinating to to watch this. That's really cool. I mean, he did a great job. It, it, he had to really dig through the archives, right? Because none of us know any of this stuff. Yeah, I'm sure that was really hard to trace. I think we could have a whole other episode on um, side note on the vamp in quote unquote vamp in Bollywood. That absolutely, because in after partition, when like more Hindu and Muslim women were allowed to be in the films, these poor Jewish women who had started a lot it all and been so progressive were kind of sidelined into this vamp character because the Indian woman was like supposed to be very sweet and gentle and like the vamp was like would do anything to get her man and they all kind of got shuttled into this archetype um, but they continued to be super progressive Solochna the first Jewish woman to um, start acting was had one of her films banned later on I think it was called Jugnu because it was like a Mrs. Robinson type story where she fell in love with it. She tried to seduce a younger man. So the film board said that it was immoral and they couldn't show it. But like these women continue to push boundaries their whole life. Like we owe them a huge debt of gratitude. Absolutely. Yeah. And they were also, Sulochana was also so popular. Mahatma Gandhi used Sulochana in one of his promotional videos. Sidebar, she also showed some cleavage. So not in the video, just in general. She was known for that also. Come on, that's cool. Body positivity, guys. Uh, what I want to talk about today is 
this man named Malik Umber, who lived in India in the mid-16th century, who was a young African man brought to India as a slave during the Mughal period from Ethiopia. And he, you know, like rose out of slavery and then became the regent of um, a place called Kharki at the time, but it's the future site of Aurangabad. So this is this really cool guy who was, like I said, was brought into India as a slave. Um, and he was known for his martial arts skills and he spoke like multiple languages and he became kind of an asset to the people who initially owned him. And he was so like sold several times over. And finally, he was purchased by this man named Mirik Dabir, who was also known as Cheggis Khan, not like Cheggis Khan, not like that. Like that was just his name. Um, and this Cheggis Khan guy was also a Habshi, which means he was also a former African slave. And he became kind of his right hand man. And they formed like a very close friendship to the point where Umber later named his second son after his former master. And after Cheggis Khan died, his wife freed Umber. Um, so then he was a free man. He got married and he created his own like army of freed African slaves in India and fought against the Mughal kings, which is why the Mughals never got full control of like the Deccan Peninsula. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm curious to know uh, a little bit about like the history of the slave trade between Africa and, and India or the Indian region. Yeah, I think it was like pretty common. Most of them were from Ethiopia. They were called at the time they were called the the Siddhis, which is a group that still exists today. And they came um, often as like they served as like protectors on these boats that rode the spice route between Africa and India and probably China, though. I don't I don't know that for sure. And this group called the Siddhis allegedly were only slaves to the ruling class of India. So they were kind of like a very particular group of people. And a lot of them rose out of slavery, which I guess in the 16th century in India was like relatively common. Like it wasn't considered that odd to the point where this guy, after he became a free man, fought a lot, like had a guerrilla army for a lot of the princes and sultans on the Deccan Peninsula. And once he defeated um, this place called Nizam, he defeated the sultan of that place. He established the sultan's nephew as the new sultan and then married his daughter to the new sultan. So like he essentially became like the prime minister to this king. That kind of sort of upward mobility was possible. And I also read that the difference between the slave trade to America and the Caribbean islands and the slave trade to India was the fact that the ones who came to America were hired as laborers on farms and plantations, whereas the ones who ended up going to India were mostly soldiers and were hired for their strength and might and military skills. Yeah, I mean, that's the, so they kind of like could climb up in the army and establish themselves um, and kind of become a pretty like active part of society. Like this same guy, Malik Umber. Um, the sultan that he established in uh, Nizam kind of got annoyed with him because he became the puppet to Malik's, you know, military strategy for Malik's military strategy, rather. Um, so he killed Malik's daughter, who he was married to, and Malik Umber got so mad he went, killed the sultan, 
killed the sultan's mom, established his grandson as the new sultan, and then just served as regent. So he essentially became king of that sultanate because he had like the military might and uh, tactics and the guy he established did not. And he was like really cool. He like promoted arts and culture. He's responsible for developing an irrigation system in Aurangabad, which still works today, brought in clean water. So like a huge contribution by a former slave to the Indian subcontinent. So it seems like there are different or there are several waves of slavery in the slave trade to India. I mean, I think it was, it seems like it was, sounds like it was pretty common in the medieval period um, and under Mughal rule. But then I read some reports that Akbar abolished slavery at some point in the 16th century, but then it was also common under British colonial rule. Well, and Jahangir comes after Akbar, right? Yeah, Jahangir was Akbar's son. So it was Akbar, Jahangir, Shah Jahan. Yeah, so it's interesting because I believe Jahangir, there was still some slavery, like Akbar might have abolished it, but I think there was still some slavery when Jahangir was king. And Jahangir hated Malik Umber so much, he had a painting commissioned of him shooting his head off with arrows, which uh, never happened in real life. But he had like, that was like his vision board. Guys, that's a funny vision board joke fascinating i mean so basically it's no surprise that malik umber then aligned with their enemies like the alternate deccan rulers he also was uh the inspiration for a lot of later rebellions against Mughal rule most notably the maratha king chatrapati shivaji maharaj who was the grandson of Maloji, who was who had served as like Umber's right hand man for like years and years and like learned guerrilla warfare. So his story carried on in the Maratha kingdom and led to many rebellions by Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj. So yeah, I mean I think it's important to be aware uh, you know, that there is this uh deep history of slavery even to the you know, um, Indian subcontinent and from, you know, different periods of time. And, you know, actually, apparently, even in um, this is, you know, obviously, we're talking about 16th century, uh, under Mughal rule, but later, when the British uh, were procuring slaves from Africa, mostly, apparently, from slave markets in Zanzibar, and they brought them to India, Bombay, uh, or Mumbai today, was apparently, like, you know, a hub for the slaves imported from Africa. That later went to other colonies or that went to Europe? Yeah, to other parts of Asia. Oh, wow. I mean, and just as a little side note, while I was reading up on the history of uh, the African people in India, uh, I found that the Siddhis also ruled a princely state in the 17th century in Gujarat. And the name of the state was Sachin. Just... Just throwing that out there. Sachin, Sachin. So actually, what's uh, happened to the descendants of, um, you know, some of these people, including Ambar and the Siddhis? So they're still, they're still in India today. Um, I think there's uh, currently in India, there's about 70,000 people of East African descent. And they can be found in Gujarat, Goa, Maharashtra, and Karnataka. They're unfortunately living kind of 
more tribal lives they're not well resourced they've been designated as like a scheduled tribe as they're called in uh, in india which is yeah so it's kind of a it's kind of our version of affirmative action so these tribes which are economically and uh, they need more support from the government they get reservations in jobs and they i mean they they get help from the government in getting jobs and uh, going to college so it's kind of our version of affirmative action yeah I, i found this really enduring story and kind of a little sad too so when obama became president in 2009 the siddhis felt like one of their own had become like a like the leader of the world and they had planned to send him a bottle of honey that they had extracted from the forest that they live in as a gift for becoming president i think they did it they wanted to do this both times he became president but d- did they I didn't really find any records of the honey reaching the US. But that's still very that's like very very thoughtful and kind. It's really interesting to learn how many descendants of these communities um are still in India and you know interesting because there is now so much more um migration from certain countries in Africa to India um as many students and uh people that come to to work um and there is so much colorism in india and anti blackness in india and i you know have heard the word hapshi before but i didn't know where it came from i didn't realize it was like connected to an ethnic group uh with this history but i think it's used as a pejorative now um against african immigrants which is so sad right because these are people one who've been in the country since the Mughal empire so they are just as indian as any of us um and they've maintained their cultural heritage which is great um i was watching a documentary where people were talk- they were talking about how this was about a siddhi group in karnataka who speaks kannada right like they grew up there they are kannadiga um as well as being siddhi and so people like talk about them because they think they can't understand regarding their color the way they look whatever but they they do understand because they are indian and i think i think it's really important that we all learn more about these small groups that are minorities but have contributed to india in such a huge way like clearly a huge part of india's military history can be um brought back to the original siddhis like malikambar and others you know when we were researching there's quite a few who rose to prominence there definitely is a huge need for more awareness and understanding of also like how much of a a relationship and connection um Africa and India have had yeah and i think it starts with uh learning some of this history right like i think if we learned more of this stuff we would see how global um the indian community really can be and really um i don't know cherish that and be proud of that rather than kind of creating these artificial divides based on skin color and looks for you know for the lack of a better word i well, i ended up going down the rabbit hole of reading about the siddhi community and it turns out there's more of them in pakistan than they are in india there's about 200 or 250000 of them depending on which number you look at they're mostly in the karachi and balochistan regions and they're called shidi there i'm i hope i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correct but that's how it's spelled and a woman of shidi this descent her name is tanzila kamrani she became the first uh, african pakistani lawmaker in 2018 so that's kind of a good step and it's just encouraging to see but 
I read that they they faced the same amount of discrimination with respect to their skin color and how they look and how they don't look Pakistani or Desi enough. So it's it's the same story across the across the border. I also read about this other guy called Jamaluddin Yakut, who was supposed to be a quote-unquote close confidant of Razia Sultan, who is, I think he she is the first woman ruler of the Indian subcontinent. And I think like he was having an affair with her. Yeah. So <laughs> he he was like pretty close to her. But they made a movie on Razia Sultan, also called Razia Sultan, very creatively, in which Hema Malani played the queen, and it was Dharmendra who played the slave. Dharm Singh Deol from the earlier <laughs> Daisy thing. Dharmendra, whose skin color is extremely fair. Yeah, it was not what one would call good casting. Let's be fair, Bollywood has never been known for good casting. True that, true that. I mean, they also cast Priyanka Chopra as Marycom when there's like an entire community of people. You know what? Sorry to go off on this tangent, but like the the strangest Sorry. part of the movie Marycom is that everyone else who's cast in that movie i think it's like they cast northeastern actors and actresses and it's just priyanka chopra who's not <laughs> even so it's a bit disjointed it's not consistent well and she does if i remember correctly kind of an offensive accent at least you should you should try to get the accent right if you're gonna do it yeah, and yeah. I, I, I kind of remember her basically doubling down and saying, I'm an actress, I can play any role. Like, why can't actresses play roles of people whom they're not? But I'm like, yeah, you can, but like you don't, A, you don't look like Marycom. B, there's definitely actors from Manipur, where Marycom is from, who are much better than what, like Priyanka Chopra. Who, by the way, don't get cast in mainstream Indian cinema because they don't, quote unquote, going back to who we cast in film, look Indian enough. Right? Like, give people, if you're going to tell one story about a money, like somebody from Manipur, cast somebody who is from that place. All right. So, here's my thing everyone thinks rice and wheat are so dominant in the Indian food diet, but this shift is actually fairly recent. And before the Green Revolution of the 1960s in India, the central staple of the diet in many parts of India, the central area, the southern area, and parts of the north, was actually millets or coarse grains or cereal crops. You might know them as the terms of jowar, ragi, bajra, which are part of the indigenous local diet in many parts of India. And they were actually also accounting for 40% of all the cultivated grains in the country. But the Green Revolution, which basically from the late 50s to the 1960s, transformed the agricultural system in many developing countries um, into an industrial system with modern methods and technologies to basically have higher yields, led to the rise of polished rice and refined wheat flour, uh, leading to where we're at today. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people, especially in the West, you go to the Indian restaurant, what they give you is a side of naan and some white rice. Right. But I thought that rice was a part of Indian diet, like from the very beginning. I think it has been a part of the Indian diet. But what was happening is that there had been several famines in British India and in India. Um, and people were concerned about, um, you know, this, this is a huge issue. And so people were trying to figure out how to uh, make India be able to produce enough 
uh, wheat and rice for so many people, for the hundreds of millions of people. And so as they were at that time. And so uh, what was the issue was that a lot of these crops, uh, you know, there would be, you know, succumb to different kinds of rainfall or disease or, you know, the wheat crop itself would was so tall, it would like tower over and fall. And so they were, were basically, even though it was a, it was a staple of the diet, they were not able to produce enough people. And so there was a shift in how much was going to get produced. And once that shift happened, it led to rice and wheat becoming so predominant in terms of what was cultivated, and in turn having that trickle down effect into the diet. That's really cool because, and it kind of makes me think about, there's a West Wing episode where Jed Bartlett talks about dwarf wheat. Yeah. Is that the Green Revolution? Right. He's referring to a uh, Norman Bulog, who basically came up with this uh, dwarf wheat, uh, this idea of the dwarf wheat, which will help, um, which is a little shorter crop of wheat and will can be um, produced more easily and doesn't have some of those risks. Yeah, I remember uh, Judd Bartlett very eloquently telling us that the wheat would get really tall and the like the actual wheat kernels, I don't know what the technical agricultural term is, would cause it to fall over and then it would get like eaten by animals or rot or whatever. So this dwarf wheat could handle the weight of that and yeah. thus they could produce more. See guys, watch The West Wing, best TV show ever. Yeah, but there were some adverse effects of the Green Revolution which are coming up now, right? Right. The downside was that, um, you know, this high, what it's called high yielding rice and wheat crops, um, they take up much more water and they need a lot of chemical fertilizers and pesticides. Both of these factors have been a huge issue for farmers, especially as with climate change, um, you know, there is less rainfall, there's more inconsistent rainfall, um, fertilizers and pesticides are expensive, um, and rice and wheat take are like what are called water guzzling. They take up a lot of water. I was reading about this, and so because the government has subsidized these kind of varieties and gives incentives for farmers, farmers to grow rice and wheat, Punjab has become a rice producer, which was never the case before. And they don't even eat that much rice in Punjab. But I, I think Punjab produces close to 9 or 10% of India's rice, which is insane. It just, I guess, shows how much of a dominant crop it's become. Yeah, and uh, India produces more rice than it can consume. So more, a lot of the rice is exported. So India is, I think, the number one exporter of rice in the world. Which is crazy to go from not being able to feed your people to feeding your people and parts of the world is nuts. But I mean, at the cost of, you know, what Veda was talking about with climate change and this like high water needing um, crop, we've also kind of lost our the diversity of rice in India, right? Like we used to have various forms of rice. And but um, I believe there's like 100,000 varieties of indigenous rice that you can barely find in India now. I was reading a paper on this and what is a curious side effect of this, the green revolution and the way uh, crops work is because because Haryana and Punjab, which are the northern states, they grow a lot of the rice and wheat because this rice kind of grows faster and because they want to double crop, they want to grow rice and wheat both in the same year. So the government has sort of mandated that you cannot sow rice seeds before, like 
there's only a certain amount of time when you're allowed to sow the seeds for rice and by the time it's harvested there's very little time left for the farmers to switch over to wheat and since they cannot manually harvest the rice and clear the fields they end up using some machines that sort of harvest the rice for them but these machines leave leave like a big chunk of the plant behind so in order to get it cleared because they only have like a gap of two or three weeks they just burn the whole field and it's this smog that ends up being delhi's famous smog which is why like it's one of the primary reasons why delhi is so polluted besides the fact that they have so many cars and there's so much construction going on but especially in october which is when the smog is the worst if i'm not wrong it's because the farmers are burning their crops oh that's where crop burning comes from apparently this year in um the delhi government is trying to work with uh for farmers in haryana at least not punjab uh to kind of find solutions to this and buy off some of this stuff or you know move it out um so that they don't burn it you kind of understand why people are trying to produce so much food, right? You have to feed a billion people. So, <laughs> millets. So, so Vades, what happened to the millets though? Are millets still eaten in India? They're definitely eaten and uh but, you know, obviously not as much and and now nutritional um, you know, advocates and several scientists um, you know, s- suggest that uh Indians consider, you know, trying to increase the amount of millets in their diet and and, and move to cultivating that more. You know, some of the pros of millets include the fact that um, they require much less water. Certain kinds yeah. require only as much as one fourth of the rainfall that rice does. Wow. And they're also, um, you know, a mix of protein, fiber, and vitamins. And so it's um, nutritionally better than, you know, certain kinds of uh, polished rice, um, which is something I think people in their region could do with a little because of their, um, you know, issues with uh, high rates of type two diabetes and other health issues. Well, and like, you know, you think we've in the past consumed a lot of rice and uh, that's, so we should be kind of adapted to that or our um, diet should be like, we should be able to handle it, but we are seeing the spike in type two diabetes. But I was really interested to find that there were a lot of different types of rice in India previously, and they all had much more like, they were much healthier, right? Like some of them were known from, and I'm going to butcher these names, but like Matel and Laldhan of Himachal were known for like curing fever and reducing elevated blood pressure. There were some that were known to like, that you women ate during menopause because they had like a positive impact on your hormone and like hormones rather. Um, and there hasn't been a ton of like scientific work done on this, but like this rice was much more nutritious. So we've taken that out of our diet and replaced it with white polished rice, which is far less nutritious, far less fibrous. So we are seeing the ad, like we're feeding people, but we're seeing the health effects. Uh, so my family used to live in uh, Rajasthan for a while and millets are very popular there because it's basically a desert state. Even in northern Karnataka, which tends to be drier and hot, uh, millets are still like quite popular, though they are more of like an occasional, it's mostly uh, wheat and rice every day, but like an occasional, we'll make something else made of millets. You know what's going to happen is that like Whole Foods is going to start carrying Bajra and Javad and suddenly there's going to be like a global craze for these foods and we're going to be like, you heard it here first. Yeah, guys, we talked about it first. So when you see 
Javad at your local Whole Foods. Hashtag three basic things. My family actually makes um, idlis out of ragi, which I think is pretty um, popular. It's like having growing popularity now. So like ragi, idli and stuff. Also like with growing, um, you know, a lot of people who are trying to go gluten-free and or who have, um, you know, issues with wheat. I think the popularity of, or trying to bring back some of these millets some of these grains is, is helps. My family eats ragi idli too, and I think it's kind of popular in Karnataka. Uh, so there's ragi idli, ragi dosa. The only complaint I have is like it, the color is kind of weird. It's like a dark chocolate colored idli, which is deceiving because you think it'll be like cake, but it's it's kind of bland to be honest. So you need like a really strong chutney or some extra sambar to make it. So we're promoting no, millet. I mean. Be honest. When I was a kid, my parents had a party that was like different themed, different kinds of idlis, and it was like different colored idlis. <laughs> idlis are for everybody. Every different kind of idli. But like, how many types of idlis are there? I, I think they were experimenting. I think you can make it with a bunch of kinds, but it was like, like something came out green. I don't know whether that was moong or or what it was from, that there was a ragi Some probably just had some food coloring and haldi, dokla type idli. <laughs> dokla idli. I mean, I know there's three types. There's like, there's obviously the rice one, there's semolina or rava idli and ragi. So there's at least three types of idlis. Now, <laughs> javad idli coming to a Whole Foods near you. But did you guys see the Twitter the Twitter storm over some British guy, like professor who basically said he doesn't like idli and everybody just lost it because they were like, how dare you say, <laughs> how dare you not like idli? He said that idlis are bland or something, right? Yeah. And, and you know what's funny is, um, I think so the Indian politician Shashi Tharoor was like, so he's obsessed with idlis and he eats idlis like every day. And um, apparently he used to even eat idlis like when he used to work at the UN in New York. Like he, and so he, he like was very uh, apparently offended. And he was like, how dare a British person tell us our food is bland when they are no one, <laughs> no one to speak. That's true. I've never heard of anybody say, "Oh, I want let's let's eat British food today." It's like bangers and mash. masala. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome for some flavor. But back to millet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously guys, they're really high in nutrition. They're a low water crop, which we're going to need cuz climate change is happening whether people want to acknowledge it or not. And they're pretty tasty. Ragi chips are really good. I mean, they're deep fried. (laughs) Are they? Yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't know how they make them, but deep fried anything. I'll eat anything. Though it's kind of hard to get millets in the US though. Like you can barely find some in the Indian Indian stores. Guys, I'm telling you, it's coming. Well, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't, or 15 years ago, you couldn't find quinoa. So, you know, if there's someone who knows, it's Veda's dad where to find the millets. Seriously. He's ahead of his time, but yeah, he's, he's going to know when you're getting it in Trader Joe's. Shaker Uncle was eating quinoa in 2004. I remember being like, yeah, but he was like, he was like, Gitu, it's the grain of the future. He was right. <laughs> so, yeah, um, as as temperatures go up and people get more unhealthy, 
a grain to keep an eye on. Come into a Trader Joe's near you, guys. The UN is going to declare International Year of the Millets. They're going to be everywhere. It's happening. It's coming up in a few years. 2023. 2023. Corona's going to leave us. Millets are going to save us. This is happening. They're really not connected at all. So PSA just... Yep. Okay. Scientifically, they're not connected, but like you come out of quarantine straight for the millets. All right. The <laughs> millets. <laughs> so on that note with millets. With millets left. <laughs> Get it? Like the minutes yeah. left. On that note, thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with three new things to talk about. Three Desi Things is by Saurabh Datar, Geetika Kalu, and Veda Shastri. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you may get your podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening to our first episode. Please tell your friends about us. Leave us a comment. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find our show. And if you have ideas on what we should talk about next, send us an email. We are at 3DaisyThings at gmail.com. We are also on Instagram at 3DaisyThings and Twitter 3DaisyThings. We're always on the hunt for cool stories from South Asia, so please get in touch. And see you next week. We're milling around.